0: Welcome to Radio Tamboa, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. One of the challenges of Christianity is the failure to put into practice that which we know to be true. That you will always find a dichotomy between belief and behavior, between faith and practice. People are eager to get the truth of the Christian faith, but you usually don't see them being practiced. I hope that this is a challenge that all of us will take away from here as we go back. That we will be asking ourselves, having been in this consultation, studying God's word for Bible education. What are we going to do with it? How are we going to make sure that we pass it on so that many other people are able to benefit? When we think about biblical living, really that's what we are talking about. Intentionally, consistently, living one's life daily in the presence of Jesus, in the power of his word, and seeking to make it known by living according to that very word. Biblical living is about experiencing God's grace and demonstrating a life of that grace before the watching world. That when people look at you, they don't just see that you are Christian because you said you are, but they can actually see your Christianity as demonstrated and put into practice before them. There was a time when the word Christian was really something special. It meant that this was a person who had a unique relationship with Jesus Christ, a person who followed the teachings of Christ and lived them out in his life. It meant that this was a person who both in word and deed demonstrated the beauty and the power of the gospel. But you will agree with me that today we live in uncertain times where the word Christian can mean different things depending on who you talk to where many people will claim to be Christian with little, if any, lifestyle changes, where many profess Christianity and belong to churches that show little evidence of the gospel. In fact, today, one can be in good standing with uh, as a member of any church, even without ever showing the fruit of the Christian faith, and nobody will see a problem. In a time like this, we have to ask ourselves, What does it really mean to be a Christian who biblically and faithfully represents Jesus in this world? When we talk about a church that is seeking to live biblically and faithfully, what kind of church are we really talking about? As individuals, when we think about ourselves and our walk with Jesus over the many years, and the many things that we know theologically, in what ways are we putting these things into practice so that the watching world or even the church itself can be able to see that Jesus is Lord of our lives? What happens when Christians who claim the lordship of Jesus Christ over their lives live faithfully and biblically? What does it look like? And what does the church today need to do, especially the church in southern Africa, to become that church that presents a powerful witness out of its faithfully living for Jesus. As I speak to you, I am not exempt from the very questions I ask or the challenges I present. As a matter of fact, about a month ago, I had opportunities to demonstrate my faith with Jesus. And you should know that I failed. It was an evening. I had just finished speaking on one of the TVs in Kampala. And I was driving back home with a number of people in my car. We were passing by a national referral hospital and we found an accident had just happened. And there was some guy who had been hit so bad and he was somewhere on the side of the road bleeding. The car had overturned on the other side of the road. There was a crowd of people who were trying to get people out of their cars, not because they wanted to save them, but because they wanted to rob them. When there is an accident like that, people are looking for wallets and watches and phones and necklaces to mention but a few. Now, when I witnessed this thing, the first thing that came in my mind was like, Oh my goodness, an accident. I picked my phone from the pocket. I took pictures. I started talking to the people in the car, complaining about the careless driving in Kampala, and off we drove and went home. When I reached home, I was very much bothered. You were at an accident scene. You saw someone who was bleeding and could have been helped. And the best you could do was to take a picture to show people when you get home. The National Referral Hospital was about 200 meters away from the accident seat. There were police and security that I could have rushed to and called and maybe they would have brought an ambulance and taken this young man to the hospital. I had an opportunity to demonstrate my Christianity and that night I failed. For the next three days, I could hardly sleep. Pictures of the accident kept coming in. And I kept wondering, how different are you from the fallacies that Jesus described in the story of the good Samaritan? How, how different are you? The people who were in the car with me, what testimony did they walk away with? Here is a Christian leader. He has been on TV speaking for the whole nation to, to listen to and to see. And now he is presented with a scenario to show Jesus. And what does he do? take pictures like everyone else, and walk away. I felt so guilty, I felt so broken, and I started saying, God, please give me an opportunity to redeem myself. You know, our God has a sense of humor. And sometimes when we ask for things, we have no idea what actually God is doing. But trust me, he provided another opportunity about three weeks ago. This time I was not a witness to an accident. I was the one directly involved in an accident. I was going four hours out of the city of Kampala to speak at a clergy conference of the Anglican Church. And just about 10 minutes into my journey, I hit a young man who was crossing the road at a bypass. I was driving about 60 miles. I hit him. He jumped and fell on the hood of the car, back to the tarmac, And he was lifeless. I knew I have killed someone. I break very quickly. I park by the roadside. And I go back to see what's happening with him. A traffic officer had also come. And uh, he was uh, trying to see whether this man was alive or not. And he quickly drew the conclusion, this man is dead. You've killed someone. So let's just go to the police station. I book you in. And then we'll see what to do. But then as I'm there, I'm thinking, are you sure you want to walk away again? This is the opportunity. Here is somebody almost near death. Isn't there something you can do? So I tell this police officer, let's take this man to the hospital. We are not very far. Even if he dies, at least let him die on the way to the hospital so that there is some demonstrated effort. The traffic officer looked at me and said, who are you? Many people, when they knock someone, immediately they run away. Are you sure you really want to take him to the hospital? I said, I really have to do this. We get this man, we put him in my car, we turn around, we head to the National Referral Hospital, we hand him in at the emergency center, we call some of the relatives we could find from his last dialed numbers in the phone. The police at the hospital was looking at me as I ran up and down, and they also came to me and they asked, so, who are you? Are you sure you know what you are doing? Do you know that right now you could be arrested because you are the one who knocked him? I said, yeah, whatever happens, what is most important is to first save the life of this man. And then let the law take its course. I'm not, I'm not running away. We go back to the police station. By this time, this traffic officer I had gone with was really, really curious. He wanted to know whether I have a problem in my head. He said, are you sure you are following me to the police station? I said, yes. He said, why do you do this? Then I said, officer, probably I didn't get a chance to tell you very well, uh, but I am actually a Christian and I'm also a pastor. It bothers me when a human life is taken away because of an accident. And it doesn't really matter who the fault whose fault it is. What matters is that there is value in human life, And anything one can do to save it, we should do our best. He looked at me and shook his head. We enter into the police station. Another accident had happened somewhere else and this time people had died. So there was a group of people who were looking for police clearance to take the dead bodies uh, to the village for burial. When I entered the traffic officer said, Now, you said you are a pastor, so you can see these people are very, very emotional. Can you calm them down and pray for them? Maybe see what you can do. I opened my Bible. I bring some word of encouragement, help them understand God's goodness. Even in times of trials, we pray together. Luckily, I had some money in my wallet. I gave them some money to help with transportation. And these police officers are looking at me and thinking, you just knocked a person, right? Now you are here helping people who have been in an accident. And for some reason, you look like you don't care about what happens to you as long as other people are helped. What is really going on? Of course, the story is long. Uh, Eventually, they allowed me to go and do my seminar and then come back to the police a few days later. I went to the hospital, visited this accident victim. I found the family and introduced myself. I expected some beatings. To my surprise, the whole family was saying, thank you. What you have done, no one does it here in this country. People knock someone, they run away. He's left for dead. But you brought him to the hospital. You called us. You paid the first medical bills. Even when the reports are clear that he was the one in the wrong. And the question again was, who are you? Why do you do the things that you do? A question like that needs some answers. And this afternoon, I want to tell you that as a Christian, faithful biblical living does not begin to happen until you ask a question like that. Who am I? Why do I do the things that I do? Why do I live differently from the rest of the world? Why is it that when everybody is looking to their well-being, I'm thinking about sacrificing for the good of others? Why have you left your home countries, some of you who are missionaries, left your comforts back at home to be on the mission field where you know that it could get messy and it might even result in your death? Why do you do the things that you do? I would like to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and I am not going to read it because of time, but it is is Second Corinthians chapter 5 from verses 10 to around verses 21. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul is basically writing to the church at Corinth and helping them to understand why he does the kind of ministry he does. He's working in a ministry context with great opposition Yet the church at Corinth sees him behaving in a way that is anti-cultural. Why is it that, Paul, you continue preaching even when nobody recognizes your preaching? Why is it that you continue to preach love even to your enemies and opponents? Paul, why do you leave your comforts where you would be living well and large to come and serve a Gentile community like ours? And in this chapter, Paul gives them at least five motivations why he does the things that he does. And I believe they are very relevant for us as we think about this theme this afternoon. In this passage, Paul breaks it down in this way. Number one, he says, I do the things I do because of who Christ is. In verses 9 all the way to verses 13 he talks about the accountability that everybody must give before Christ who will sit on the judgment throne. And then he says that since we know what it means to fear the Lord we persuade all men. We are motivated to live for Jesus. We are motivated to present the gospel to young and old, black and white, rich and poor. Because we recognize who Jesus is that we call these men to. We recognize that our work will be evaluated by Jesus on his judgment throne. And in light of who Jesus is, we make it our priority to persuade all men of the beauty of the gospel, of the heinousness of their sin, of the brevity of life on earth, and present an urgent call to be right with Christ. Number two, Paul says, but we also do these things that we do because we know what Christ has done. Verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul talks about the love of Christ that compares him, that restrains him, that hames him in. And he says, the love of Christ has gotten hold of me and I cannot imagine life without pleasing Christ. I cannot imagine it. You want to know what this kind of love looks like? Paul goes much further and says that for I am convinced that one died for all and all died in him. And then he says he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for the one who died and rose again because of what Christ has done. This love that has been powerfully, permanently, and painfully demonstrated in his death on behalf of sinners is what keeps me on the ministry front line. If I sacrifice, it's because I recognize the greater sacrifice that Christ has made. If I love people, it's because I recognize one who has loved me unconditionally, revolutionarily, beyond what I could have ever imagined. And that very love moves me. When you begin to understand who you are because of what Christ has done, that knowledge begins to align how you live. And basically this is what Paul is saying. That faithful biblical living begins with an understanding of faithful biblical being. What have you become? And therefore, what are you going to do because of what you have become? Number three, the Apostle Paul, from verses 16 and 17, he says the reason we do the things that we do, it is because of what we have become. Paul says, you see, when Christ died, he didn't just tell us about it, that he died for us. No, 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 no. Something happened to us. Something changed within us. And he says because of that transformation that has affected our thinking, our emotions, our actions, we no longer look at the world like we used it to. We no longer reward regard anyone according to the flesh or the visible signs but according to the hearts. If anyone is in Christ, the Apostle Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has gone and behold the new has come. Now we see them through new lenses, lenses informed by the authority and power of scripture. Now we look at them with the eyes of Jesus, not on the basis of their race or their background or their careers or their money or their color. No, we no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. When we go to preach the gospel, we don't preach only to the privileged or only to areas that are convenient to us. Everybody matters now. Jew and Gentile, they matter. They all have leveled ground at Calvary. They all are in desperate need of the grace of God. Because we see them with new eyes, from a new worldview, we are able to reach them no matter what it will cost us. Yeah, who we have become? But number four, the Apostle Paul goes much further and he says, the reason we do the things we do, it is because of what we have been called to be. You see, God does not only save us by his grace in Christ Jesus and then wait for us to arrive in heaven. No, 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 no. He who has saved us, he who has changed us, has now commissioned us for a greater cause. Paul talks about the ministry of reconciliation in which God, the initiator, the orchestrator of this reconciliation process has invited men and women. Now the new creation in Christ and he commissions us as ambassadors of the kingdom. He commissions us. He gives us the authority of heaven to go in his name and in his power to proclaim a message that the nations of the world did not know before. To speak on behalf of God. And Paul says that when we go out as ambassadors of reconciliation, it is as though God were making his appeal through us. Paul says we have a mission, friends. We have a calling to execute, friends. And this calling is in honor of the one who saved us, who gave himself for us, that we may no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again. And because of what we've been called to be, that's why we live the way we live. That's why we are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. That's why we give out of whatever it is God has given us. That's why we go out of our comfort zones so that other people can be comfortable. And finally, in this passage, Paul says, the reason we also do this is because we know what we have been called to do. You see, there is being called to be something, and there is being called to do something. The gospel message changes us in terms of our being, but it also gives us a challenge and a commitment to the things we need to do for the cause of the one who has saved us. And Paul describes beautifully the kind of of, of of message we are to take into the world as ambassadors. And he summarizes the gospel in a very simple way that I would call the great exchange. When you come to the end of that passage, Paul finishes it saying, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we who were sinners may become the what? The righteousness of God. Simple In simple terms, Paul says that is the gospel, the great exchange. Sinners becoming saints on account of the sinless becoming a sin and being punished for their sin. And that's the message we take to the world. A message that the cultures of the world do not understand. A message that is brought by God himself who is offended and He's is the one reaching out to the offenders. And not on account of what they have done but what he himself has purpose to do. Wow! When you understand the message we have been given, the kind of calling with which we have been called, the transformation that has come into our very own lives, then we no longer live business as usual. We become practical, visible ambassadors of the kingdom of God who cannot afford to keep quiet but to tell of the goodness and greatness of Christ. We see this happening still in the, in the scriptures, especially when you look at the beginnings of the church in Acts chapter 2. We read there, and let me read very quickly for time's sake, from verses 42 to 47. We are told that these brothers who had come to faith in Christ on Pentecost Day, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, all came upon everyone. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles all who believed were together and had all things in common they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need day by day as they spent much time together in the temple they broke bread at home and ate food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having the good will of all the people and day by day the Lord added to their numbers those who were being saved. Here is a a church that presents to us a picture of what faithful biblical living looks like. A church that is known not only by the things it believed, but by the things it did and by the way it lived. What you have here, it's not just a group of guys trying to study a set of Christian doctrine and saying, oh, wow, now I understand what the atonement is about. Wow, propitiation. This is a mind-blowing word. Great. But so what after this uh, propitiation fellowship? No. We see not only their faith in the fact that they pressed their trust in Jesus Christ, but their faith in Christ is beginning to have a visible and tangible impact. To the extent that even the people around them begin to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what is really going on? Dr. Luke tells us that from now within this congregation, no one had any need because the people who had more brought and shared with those who didn't have. You begin to see a powerful witness, not just to believers in terms of how they are living within their fellowship, but also to non-believers who are watching what God is doing among them. Here is a people who have not only believed God, but have discovered the power of unity in fellowship regardless of who is who. They have discovered the necessity of Christian service, generosity, and compassion, sharing with one another. No wonder Dr. Luke tells us that and they were having the favor of all the people. Please note, That being a biblical and faithful church does not mean necessarily that it's a perfect one. As we look through Dr. Luke's story in Acts, we begin to see that the church is experiencing serious challenges. In Acts chapter 5, we have a tragic case of Ananias and Sapphira. Stealing, lying, pride, greed, and so on and so forth. In chapter 6, we have a conflict within the church between the Jewish widows and the Greek widows. Corruption, nepotism, and greed have already entered the house of God. In chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem Council conflict as to how one gets saved. Do we have first-class Christians and second-class Gentiles who well are accepted but must remain in economy? Problems will be in any church. No church is perfect. But do you know that even in the midst of this kind of chaos, God is presenting an opportunity for faithful biblical living. How you resolve these issues also tells the world whether you really understand who Jesus is and what he has made you. The problem is not that they are experiencing this conflict. The issue is how do they go about resolving these conflicts in a God-honoring manner, in a Bible-instructed manner. And indeed, when you look at how the apostles resolve the conflict in Acts chapter 6, you can see that they demonstrate truth. They demonstrate faithfulness to the cause of Christ. And the the issue is not only resolved, but order and discipline are brought into the church. Another testimony. So even in time of conflict and confusion and chaos, there is always an opportunity for us as Christians to present a faithful biblical witness before the watching world. There is never an excuse that you cannot live faithfully because of this problem or that problem. You see, it was beyond my handling. We are called to be faithful no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what the cost will look like. And that's a challenge for you and I. As we speak this afternoon, you probably want to be asking yourself a question. How can we be this kind of church that lives faithfully and biblically in spite of what is going on all around us? A context like South Africa that is torn apart by racial prejudices, tribal conflicts, economic disparities, a culture of corruption and abuse of power, wildly and deceptive philosophies, intergenerational disconnects, complex cultural and social issues like LGBTQ and so on and so forth. How can we present a credible witness for Christ in a torn apart society like South Africa today? Now some of you may be saying, well it's easy for you to talk because after all you are not South African. Tomorrow you will fly home and it will be business as usual. Trust me. No matter where we are, no country, no culture is exempt from the challenges of a broken and sinful world. Back in my own country where I live, the church is not in any better shape. If you look at the corruption in Uganda, some of it even coming from the top leadership of the church, you realize that we are not any better. Immoral scandals from top church leadership a church that is riddled with syncretism and false teachers of various kinds. We are not in any better shape, brothers. And as I speak to you, I speak to myself too. When I live here tomorrow, how am I going to live? Will I pass on the message I have received here this week so that many can be challenged to live by God's word, not just for education, but for all of life? Is that the challenge I'm taking back to Kampala tomorrow? But even as we talk about these things, brothers, I need to remind you that there is hope because no matter what, our God is always sovereign. Because of time, I have not had uh, an uh, opportunity to share with you a bit more of the background of the church in East Africa, where I come from, in terms of the challenges and consequences we face. But I can tell you this one thing. That this region of East Africa has seen the hand of God before and has been presented an opportunity to live biblically and faithfully, and that will go into the records of history. I don't know how many of you have heard about the East African revival. This was a revival movement that began way back around 1929 and went on into the early 90s, a move that revolutionized the church brought it back to the sufficiency of scripture and the centrality of Jesus. And how did it begin? Ordinary men and women who were tired of the nominalism and the traditionalism of missionary Christianity of the day. Men and women who said enough of the monotony, we want to experience the power of Calvary and we want the world to see Jesus. They began praying under mango trees. They began opening the scriptures to find out what the gospel really was and how best they could communicate it in word and deed. The fire took off a beginning from northern Rwanda, came into southwestern Uganda, spread across the country and into Kenya. And when this movement had taken off, the generation of people that came out of it could not be mistaken for anything but Christian. They didn't need to tell you that they were Christians. You just knew because they lived it out. They didn't just sing that Christ is the Savior. They showed you how Christ can save you and redeem you from your very own sins. This was a holistic transformation of mind and heart as well as a move practically to bring the light of the gospel to the dark region of East Africa. There was a complete separation from traditional worship and syncretism. Fetishes and witchcraft articles were banned in broad daylight. Those who were polygamous left polygamous relationships and repented. These people were known for public confession of sin and restitution. I have a very small book here written by um, Dorothy Smoker. It is a book about a bishop in Uganda who was famously known as Bishop Festo Tvengeri. You know, the very tiny book, Revolutionary Love, do not undermine it for its tininess. If you open its pages, by the time you get to the last one, you will not be the one who opened it at the beginning. This book has been a blessing to me for the last like 25 years that I have been reading it. But what was it really about? a recounting of the story of the East African revival and the impact that it left behind as men and women discovered not only the saving grace found at Calvary, but the power that is at work in all those who believe to become a light for the dark world. These people believed that for you to be right with God, you had to step out of your comfort zone, admit your sinfulness, Confess Christ before the watching world and be set free. They were characterized by restitution and restoration. If anybody had stolen anything from someone, they were not afraid to bring it before the watching world and confess, I stole your cow and now it has given birth, therefore I have brought them back because they belong to you. How could you do that? Because I was arrested. Who arrested you? Jesus did. I was a prisoner when I had your cows. Now that I have brought them back, I feel like a free man. And they would go dancing and whistling, singing the power of Calvary as they went back home. Hate them, love them. They had made a complete turn for Jesus and it changed everything. This movement had a focus on scripture and fellowship. To this day in some parts of Uganda, there is a tradition where people wake up at five in the morning. You will hear people singing and having devotion and study of scripture. And this is coming from the influence of the East African Revival. Many times when I mention my name, people ask me, why do you have a whole paragraph of a name? And I tell them, you want to know why I have that long name? It is because of the East African Revival. When these men and women knew who Jesus was, they realized that the cultural names they were having were more like a curse to them. So instead, they adopted names that describe the character, the beauty, and the attributes of God. And that is why my parents named me Atwebembide. It means God is leading us. My elder brother is called Asasra, He forgives. The sister who follows me is called Natkunda. He loves us. Another one is called Ayavade. May he be praised. If you come to Uganda today, by listening to the name of a person, you can easily tell which region of the country they come from. And the longer the name, the better. Because it means they are coming from that culture of the East Africa revival. That's where they are coming from. Can we be biblically faithful in a society or a world that is torn apart? Can we be faithful even when faithfulness might cost us? And the answer is yes. I want to read for you a bit from this book. And you hear how Bishop Festo Trevenger describes what it meant to live for Jesus during a time of great political persecution. In East Africa. So listen very carefully. This, this chapter he has entitled it, Love Triumphs in Suffering. Ever since the 1950s, our brethren in one part or another of East Africa have been caught up in political turmoil in which they had no part, but under which they have suffered. In the midst of this, Calvary Love has taught us all some important lessons. First in Kenya in the 1950s, the Maumau uprising aimed at turning the whole Kikuyu tribe into freedom fighters using guerrilla tactics against the governing British. Although our Christian brethren agreed with the goal of national freedom, there was nothing on earth that would make them take the oath to murder that was demanded of them. So hundreds of them were killed. They were attacked because the unity of the tribe through oathing was the first objective of the Maumau leaders. Christian resistors were quietly strangled on the path or chopped up with machetes at night in their homes. Government officers, assuming that these suffering brethren must be their allies, offered them guns for self-protection. The answer from the believers, however, was no thank you. We love you and we love our Kikuyu brothers as well. How can we tell the ones in the forest about the love of God if we are holding guns? And testify they did as they died. A few years later, we heard about it from once tough mouth fighter who turned to Christ. I remember the one who stood up in a convention in Kenya held in 1958 before 11,000 people. He said, "I was one who led a group of fighters to attack a Christian family at night. We were ordered to do it because they were hardcore resistors, but to my surprise." That man loved us. He said that he was not at all afraid to die, for he would immediately be with Jesus. Then he pleaded with us, not for his life, but for ours, that we awake and repent while there was still time. We killed him, but he died praying, Father, please forgive them and give them time to turn around. We went back to the forest, but the face of that man and his love never left me. At last, his Jesus has found me, and now I want to tell everyone about him. This man became an evangelist, and Chvenger says, I have preached by his side since then. And then he asks, how do you destroy Christians like that? You beat them, they love you. You put them to shame, they think you have given them an opportunity to be creative. You kill them, and they win you because they fly to heaven. This is not a story of what could be, my friends. This is a story of what has been in East Africa. Men and women gripped by the power of Calvary, willing to live for Jesus no matter the cost. In fact, taking advantage of every opportunity that God provided, whether through good times or trials, to show that when Jesus is on the throne, things are already better. Many of us will quickly say, we recognize the importance of living faithfully for Jesus. But what about when it is beyond our means? What about when obedience to Christ might mean that we will be killed? What about our if our integrity means that we will lose our jobs? We will be chased away from the academic institutions where we are studying. What do we do? Do we compromise a bit and then repent later? How do we go about it? And the scriptures tell us that we are called to obedience no matter where that road may lead. When Jesus said that if anyone must come after me, He must deny father, mother, brother, sister. Yes, even himself carry his cross daily and follow me. That's what he was talking about. When you carry a cross, you are not going for a vacation. You are going to die. And that's a one-way road. Yet Jesus has no exceptions. If anyone must come after me, that is the road to fall. And as believers... Faithful biblical living sometimes will require that we pay a sacrifice. Sometimes if we are lucky, it will require that we just get rid of the immediate comforts around us. But in most cases, it will call for men and women willing to carry their cross no matter where that road will lead. Men and women. Applying the truth of the scriptures. Demonstrating the grace of Jesus both to loved ones and enemies. Men and women being consistent in their beliefs as well as their behaviors. No matter which culture they are in. No matter which place they find themselves in. I want to conclude with a personal story that I usually don't tell by the way. But let me say it for your sake. I had another opportunity to witness for Jesus. About four years ago. A near-death experience, actually. I wake up in the morning and I hear some of my girls shouting, "They are thieves! They are thieves in the house!" And I'm thinking, "Thieves in the house at seven in the morning? Who does that?" Foolishly, I wake up without even dressing up. I go to see uh, whether it is actually true. Only to reach there and I'm met by two guys with machetes. And I find myself in the struggle with fighting one punch after another. And in a short moment, they get my wife and the guy puts a knife on her throat. And he says, release my colleague or I slit her throat. In that moment, I'm now thinking, okay, 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 okay. What do I do? If I don't release him, my wife could be dead. And I'm going to be the reason she died, right? But if I release them... Then I have given them an upper hand to do whatever they want to do and they can just kill a whole family of seven. So what do I do? In that moment, I'm sweating, I'm scared and then I remember that I am a Christian. You know, sometimes you will find yourself in situation, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I am a Christian by the way. And that's when I started saying, wait a minute, how come you never even thought about praying? Now is the time. And so I make a short prayer. I say, Jesus, I'm going to release this guy. But if they kill us, then wherever the day finds us, you are Lord. Because we believe and we trust in you. I put the the guy down. And of course, he beat me, having already uh, beaten him. And he was angry. He gave me back some punches. So they sit us down, a family of seven they tie us, uh, our hands and our legs, and they sit us in the dining room there. We were there for about nine hours, held hostage, as they packed everything you could think about in the house, the big and the small. Bugs were coming down, up and down. And I was there wondering, okay, so we are tired, we are helpless. These guys can do anything. They can rape my daughters. They can kill my children while I am watching. They can even begin with me, by the way. And I was wondering, when they finish doing this and carrying the things, what's going to happen? Are they going to leave us to go and report to the police? Or are we going to be lying here in a pool of blood, beheaded by the evening? But as I keep thinking through all these things, again I remind myself, you are a Christian. Are you sure this is the time to be worrying about what could happen? Oh, this is the time to be reminding yourself of what you really believe and whether you actually did believe it. There comes a moment where you have to put all your theological truths on the table and evaluate them. Do I really believe what I have always told the world that I believe? That was my moment. I composed myself, introduced myself to one of the guys who was watching us. He was a Muslim actually. And I introduced myself. I said, by the way, in the panic, I forgot to tell you who I am. I am a Christian and I am a pastor. And this guy said, I already know you. I did all the research on you. I know what you do. I know where you come from. Of course, I knew I am a pastor. But what difference does it make? You all pastors, after all, are liars. Don't I watch you on TV conning people? I'm thinking, okay, this has not started well. <laughs> so I go back and I say, look. You may think I am a pastor like those you have been watching on TV, but I am a different pastor and I need to tell you what makes me different. So I begin sharing the gospel. I tell him why I am not like those con men on TV and why I really do believe that Jesus does save. I start reminding him of what could happen if he died today and how he would be eternally condemned. And I said, by the way, I'm not afraid to die. If you want to kill me, you can even start with me now. Only you need to remember that if I die, I will be in heaven this evening. Question is, if the tables were to turn around, where would you be today? Have you ever considered that? Within an hour, the guy had put the the machete down. We were having a conversation like normal human beings. He started telling me about problems in his marriage and his children and uh, why he even robs people. And I started giving him some business proposals. I even said, you know what? When you are done here, whatever it is you are going to do, after settling down, I want you to come back to me. And we discuss some of the ways in which you could start meaningful businesses so that your children doesn't have to eat the blood of innocent people. You can earn decently, and I want to help you to do that. And the young man was like, how will you help me when you are dead? I said, well, if I am dead, even all the better, because then that means me, I'm in heaven, I don't lose. Alive you gain, dead you lose, again. So what do you want to choose here? Anyway, to cut the long story short, one of our young girls who had run and hidden in the bathroom all these hours, started knocking the door and some people from the community heard about it. They came running to rescue us. Within about 30 minutes, we had about 50 people from the community with stones and machetes and knives coming to lynch these guys. When the guy who was up packing things knew that trouble was coming, he jumped through the, the, the behind the back door, jumped over the perimeter wall and ran away. Now, the one who was remaining inside was cornered because the whole crowd had already gathered around the house. And now the question was, what am I going to do? And I told him, I promised you that I will not even report you to the police. I even promised that I will help you to start up a business. And as a servant of God, I actually meant it. The tables have turned. You are now at my mercy. If I hand you over to these people, you will be dead tonight. And you are not ready to die. right? Let me do you a favor. I am going to protect you. He looked at me and said. That's not true. How can you do that after all I did to your family? said yeah you did that to my family. But I am going to protect you. You will not die today. And if you live here and you don't learn your lesson. Then if there is no second chance. I will not be to blame. But for today. I am going to protect you. I I ask him to untie us. He unties me and I go and open the door for the people to come in. But meanwhile, I tell him to go and hide in the bathroom upstairs. The community comes, police, they, they look around. They ask, so where is the second one who was here? We know they were two. I said, well, now this is where you could say I also sinned in the process because I lied to the police that he had also disappeared. But he was actually in the bathroom. Anyway, three hours later, everything has settled down. I go back to the bathroom and I say, young man, now it is safe for you to go home. I hope you realize that you could have been dead today. I hope you realize you are saved, not because I know you, not because you are special in any way. But because I serve a man who 2,000 years ago died for you, I want to commend that man to you. And he asked me, so can you give me a Bible? Because I don't even have a Bible, and I don't know how I am going to know about the truth of the Christian faith. See, you just pick from my library. Any Bible you find easy to read, just pick it, and I have given it to you. I escorted him out of the house that evening about uh, 8 p.m., escorted him out of the gate and told him when you settle down my promise still stands come i will teach you the gospel i will pray for you and i will see to it that you grow in your faith the young man walked away to this day he has not come back i don't know what that means i don't know whether he reached there and became a christian but one thing i know is that his colleague went to steal in another place two weeks later and he was caught by the community They put tires around him and burnt him to death. The young man I talked to has not returned. But even if he never returns, I look back and I say, Wow, what an opportunity to live for Christ. What an opportunity that he gave me the grace to stand when I should have panicked and done things in my own flesh. But you know, this is an over-the-top experience. Think for a moment. How many opportunities do you have every day, small or big, to become a witness for Jesus? And have you been utilizing them? How can we challenge ourselves to leave this consultation and say from now on, we will never allow our light to be under the basket? we are going to put it on the top of a hill to shine for the world. Can we walk away remembering the call of Jesus for us believers to become the salt of the earth, that wherever we are as Christians, individually or corporately, we will have a severing, a preserving, and a disinfecting impact on the people that we live with and live among. Christianity is not a set of doctrines that we are sent to. It is a life we live fueled by Calvary's power and God's grace as it works in and through us touching those all around us. Church is not just what happens on Sunday when believers gather together. It is also what we do Monday to Monday when we are out there in the community, at our workplaces, in the kitchen with the cooks that cook for us, our housemaids who help us to clean the house. That is where real church takes place. And when we commit to live faithfully for Jesus The impact is not just one of salvation of a few. It is one of transformation of communities in heart, in mind, in action. It happened in the East Africa revival. It is happening in different parts of the world. It can happen in South Africa today. It can happen among the TEASA delegates today as we make a commitment to go out and faithfully put to practice and action. The truth of scripture as we have learned them. And as we walk one day at a time in obedience. We will see the power of the gospel demonstrated in and through our lives. Touching many, changing cultures, changing worldviews, bringing God the glory. May God bless you. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at AfricanApologetics.org.